0: Are you seeking a better way to accelerate your sales, to scale your business, to live a life with no limits? Accelerate Sales Podcast features global experts who have cracked the code to recurring revenues with proven sales systems and get you on the fast track to scaling. Now let's accelerate your sales with today's episode. Hi, I'm Paul Higgins and welcome to the Accelerate Sales Podcast, episode number 416. You're going to learn some amazing things today, but three is how to put yourself out of a job He's got a brilliant plan for that. The second is how to prepare for exiting your business. And the best time to do that is now. And the third is how to get a higher multiple when you're exiting your business. For first time listeners, if you love it, please subscribe. And if you're a regular, that's right. you If you listen regularly, please leave me a review on the platform that you're listening to. Uh, I love those and uh, truly appreciate it. There's a summary of the notes in the platform you're listening to. You can get the... A more detailed summary at paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash podcast, and you can also get the full transcript if you just ask. And before we go into the interview with Raj, I'd like to talk about two of our sponsors. One is the Cloud Consultants Collective. So it's a peer-to-peer group. It's free where people help each other to scale their business. It's a it's a wonderful um, community, and you can join that at the collective.com. The next is Send Spark. Uh, if you're struggling to get replies, whether it's in follow up or you're not getting comms through to your client that you'd love to, it's a brilliant video platform to help with that. It's got all the analytics and it's absolutely wonderful. And if you go to paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash send Spark, you get six months free, which is pretty cool. So our guest today is uh, Raj. He's a dad, serial business founder, an owner. And a recovering attorney, if there's such a thing, is a veteran entrepreneur, and he has worked across so many areas, including marketing and advertising, internet, and the SaaS. And he's worked for some of the biggest brands in the world, at like Facebook, Google, et cetera. Uh, he's built organizations from scratch, and he's actually exited two of them his own. And he also now helps people by being an investor and an advisor to effectively help them to scale. And he's got two superpowers that are on evidence today. One is generating customer demand for his portfolio companies, the ones that he invests in. And the other is optimizing a corporate structure to keep revenue rather than sending it to the tax man, which we all love. So what I'll do now is hand you over to Raj Jha from ExitScout.com. So excited to have you here, Raj.
1: It's great to be here, Paul.
0: Yeah, well, we, we had a conversation, it was a while ago, but it stuck with me because I think uh, exiting at a, at an agency is uh, a goal that a lot of you have and uh, you might be listening now thinking, you know, oh, what, what are the things I should be preparing for? So we'll definitely cover that. And, and while we talk about that, who is your ideal client at the moment? Who do you love to, to work with?
1: Uh, for me, largely it's self-funded business owners, uh, typically doing a million or more in revenue. Uh, and they're looking for their companies to be more more valuable both today and when they want to sell. And I think we're going to end up covering a lot of that because there's there's a wonderful synergy between if you start preparing for exit early you actually are doing things that make your business better today. Uh, But in essence, those are who I work with. So I don't work with folks who have gotten venture capital funding, et cetera. It's really more either bootstrapped or friends and family. And they've gotten to this certain point and they're looking to say, okay, how do I get better today? And how do I most importantly prepare for an exit? Uh, So that's, that's kind of what I do now. And, just by way of background, you know, I've been an attorney in the past, so I've done a bunch of M and A, uh, and have you know founded and exited a couple of my own businesses. So that's kind of the context that I come to this with, having made a bunch of mistakes, uh, both <laughs> both for myself and you know the companies I've worked for, and and had some successes. So I, I I've kind of honed in on those are the people I really like to work with because they kind of are fit the mold of what I did.
0: Yeah, and I think that's great where you talk about that million dollar mark because I think you know a lot of people. Uh, you know, you might be at that mark at the moment, and you know they think, oh, well, uh, you know I'm too small. I'm too small to ever think about exit, right? It's uh, you know it's only for the big guys, et cetera. So, you know, do you often see that that people or or looking for investors like you to 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 go into the business, do they sometimes forget the fact that you know at a million dollars, it's still still a good proposition to for you to go into?
1: Well, it could be. Um, I'll be honest and say at a million bucks, you don't have a lot of options unless everything else is firing on all cylinders. Yeah. So the, the point is, can, you know, once you can get to a million dollars in EBITDA, so if your profit gets there, okay, now you're starting to talk. But very often a million dollars in revenue, you're talking, is this really just a founder's business plus a few staff or some freelancers? Yeah, but-, but you've got enough infrastructure that you can start thinking big. Right, but not so much that uh, it's going to be necessarily an easy sale. So that's in fact the time to start thinking about it. And if you know the, the correct time to start thinking about selling is now, right? If you haven't already. So even if it's ten years down the road, fifteen down the or even if you never want to sell, uh, you never know what life brings and what your health might bring. Um, you know, as you know, Paul, that the world changes for everybody. And having a business that's set up for that is a wonderful not only peace of mind but makes the business better.
0: Yeah, well, look, I know you've got certain, you know, you've got your guidelines on what makes a successful investment or a successful exit. So we'll get to that in a moment. But like you said, you were – you know you ran your own agency so you've walked where Mm -hmm. a lot of us have walked before um, and it was specific to law firms and obviously you got a legal background right which is probably an obvious one for you but just tell us a little bit about your learnings running an agency and uh, and I know that you know you did exit them so yeah tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about your own experience before we go into how that applies to what you do today.
1: Sure. Um, so I was very intentional about picking the niche of the agency. Uh, that's not to say it didn't evolve a lot over time, but I'm a uh, you know, former attorney, and I was an attorney who worked on internet advertising. So I was, I worked with Facebook and Yahoo, and those are my clients, and really working in the early days of those companies on on their internet ad platforms. So I kind of knew marketing, and I kind of knew uh, law firms, and I put two, two together and say, okay, well, here's an, uh, a market which has folks who make a decent living. So there's, there's some money there and their marketing is just atrocious and they don't know what they're doing. Uh, and so I put those two and two together and that's how I went into the niche. So the niche really helps because when you can speak to, this is what I do, and this is uh, who I can help. And here is my background and all my experience in that, that really, really helps. That's not to say that that was enough. Uh, because for the first, I would say year and a half to two years, I struggled a fair amount because I was really aiming for a size of entity that was too small. I was going to be solo practitioners and, you know, just kind of how like now I've worked with companies at a billion dollar mark, uh, at the agency at that point, I would, I would take someone who's making $150,000 a year, which isn't the business, right? It's a, it's, it's a gal or guy with an office and that's, that's really what it is. So I struggled for a couple of years, and probably if I had been smart at the time, probably would have shut the business down. Um, but I'm kind of obstinate in that way. And until I went up market and I started thinking, okay, I actually need multi partner firms, right? I, I, they need to be making 750 million dollars a year in order to have enough budget to move the needle. That's when it started catching. And then, really, my biggest learning was, you know, keep on keep on turning up what you charge until it's embarrassing and then keep on going. And then once they start to say no, then you might back off a little. So I went from, you know, very low end commodity services at like 600 bucks a month. And then I went to 1200, then I went to 1800, then 2400, and then 3,200. And then I was like, okay, well, this is too short. This is taking too long. So 5,000, 7,500. And these are monthly numbers, right? Uh, 10,000, 18,000. So it, I just kept on going higher and higher until They were like, "Ah, yeah, I'm not sure I can afford it. Okay, well, let's take up a little scope and let's redo it like this. And so I think that learning really made it into a real organization, one in which I could afford to have really high quality people doing the work. So I think that's that's the biggest learning on that front. And then in addition, thinking about the business as a machine in a way, and I'm sure you've heard people say this, but uh, everything should have a standard operating procedure and really documenting that and making sure that the team is uh, adhering to it and that they understand why and that they can articulate why to the, to each other, to the client, that's really important. So that's kind of the arc that I went on there. Um, and uh, throughout the sales process, um, really finding a buyer who wanted the entity partially for the brand value because we had a, a it was called practice alchemy it's, it still exists today it's a you know very good brand name uh for any kind of professional services organization and having kind of a really really well known brand with good operations uh that frankly they made better after it was acquired because much larger you know organization 10 times the size of mine so they made it even better yes. um but i think that that's the arc that i that i went on there but i'm sure you, you can have some follow up questions on that
0: so it obviously scale it and build it you needed mm-hmm. to be really proficient in sales and marketing. So, you know, and and often I work with a lot of agencies that, you know, it's the plumber of the leaky tap, right? They're, they're mm-hmm. doing a lot of work for their clients, but they don't really do a lot of ma- sales and marketing for themselves. And that's often why they come to me. You know, for your experience, what really worked uh, for you to, to scale the front end of the business?
1: Well, I think the first thing is having the mindset that that is my job, right? So I have... I had two jobs. My first job is to put myself out of a job. My second job is to market the business and really doing as much as I could. So I did a whole bunch of uh, video marketing, essentially a bunch of YouTube uh, kind of things, email marketing, but we were a huge proponent of paid media. So uh, we ran Google ads, we ran LinkedIn ads, Facebook ads. So uh, throughout the entire course of uh, pretty much from day one, I even started on direct mail at the very beginning. Uh definitely a lot of paid advertising to jumpstart the business. Um, and it actually was extremely expensive in the first few years because I was trying to figure out what worked. But paid, paid advertising was the under, underpinning of everything. Um, I'm, and that also reflects my own bias, to be honest. I'm a paid media guy. I understand it, and but it happens yeah. fast. Yes. So if I'm going to do SEO for three years until I get somewhere, I don't get those three years back if it didn't work. And those three years to me are more expensive than $10,000 a month or what have you in paying for LinkedIn ads to get some leads that I know if it's working or not very quickly. So philosophically, I really leaned into paid media and then testing different hooks. Like, does this offer work? Does does this resonating with the audience? And testing again and again, and you fail much more than you succeed. But with a testing mindset, I think that's what drove it drove us to be able to get enough leads and enough uh, meetings to really make it grow.
0: Yeah, and did that come at the expense of you know your drawings? Your
1: yeah, yeah, it did, it did. But that's so that's an investment. Yourself. I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, I'd rather back myself than sticking it in the market, certainly you know these days. but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, So yeah, I, I definitely back back myself and back the brand because that's that's what I was doing. And, and I'm not a, a big fan of just brand advertising, but in a niche, it's a little bit different because if you do something like there's a trade show and you blanket the trade show, um, you know, we did a bunch of geo targeting, and we blanketed the trade show just while the trade show was in session, so that people on their mobile phones would see our name. But we didn't have to buy a booth; it was actually cheaper than buying a booth. But we blanketed the entire thing, and uh, the comment that we would get on sales calls is, "I see you guys everywhere," and that's exactly what I wanted to hear.
0: Yeah, and and did you do that in house or did you use um, agencies yourself to to run those paid ads?
1: It's it was a combination, um, mostly in house. Um, although in the later years we did outsource some of it, the Google stuff because that's uh, we found a really good partner who could do that. Um, and then we did have some help on the content side as well. I generated the content in terms of it coming out of my brain and and the strategy for it, but the execution of it um, instead of doing in house because we didn't do that same kind of uh, content for clients. So there was no point in having in-house resource. So so we did outsource pieces of that.
0: Yeah. And and any tips like, you know, there's a lot of agencies, you know, you might run your own agency where you do paid, right? But there's some other people who are listening now who, you know, might be more consulting on the sales side of it, et cetera. So they're not actually, mm-hmm. you know, experts of paid. You know, any tips on how do you pick the right agency or the right partner?
1: Cool. Yeah, you know yeah. that's a, that's a really really tough question because it depends on your size. If you are under a million dollars, I I find it that you often can't afford someone mm-hmm. who is really going to be that good. So you're kind of forced to learn it yourself. So hook or crook, get to a million bucks, and then perhaps you've got enough slack in the system to afford an agency that's actually good. And I'm not I'm not disparaging anyone who's tar- you know might be a a, a great solo ads person but the fact is you just don't know. And uh, you know, there is somewhat of a proxy of, if well, if they can charge five grand a month to do this, and they have a bunch of clients, that's probably an indicator that you know, they're doing something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. So- So, you know, you're sitting here and you're thinking, when's Raj going to talk about the things that I need to do to successfully exit my business, right? So let's Mm -hmm. talk about that. I know you've got sort of 12 principles or 12 guidelines that you look through. What are some of the ones that a lot of us miss when we're preparing or looking, you know, I suppose getting our business right to have someone like you Mm -hmm. to come in and uh, invest or
1: acquire? So I think the biggest thing is first uh, a mind shift that everyone is so worried about revenue right and saying that how do i get my profits up so i'm at 2 million dollars now and i want to double my exit valuation so i was thinking so i have to be at 4 million right and they're very focused on that but there's two ways to get there because what you're ultimately paid on exit is a multiple of ebitda so it's the profits multiplied by a number So you've actually got two things you can play with here. Yes, you might have to double sales to double your exit valuation, but sometimes that's the harder thing to do. And there are other things that you can do which have to do with process and systems that you can put in place. So maybe to get to your target um, exit valuation, you only have to increase uh, your, uh, your EBITDA by 50%. Yes. And that's a much more attainable goal. But you're working on things like a better cash cycle. You're looking, at making sure there are no points of failure of suppliers, you know, vendors, your staff, making sure that you're not integral to the business. Uh, you know, these are all the kinds of things I look at, right? What's the cash cycling in the business? Is there recurring revenue? Uh, what are the points of failure? Uh, what What's the market look like? Um, are there new offerings that are kind of going to where the market's going to be instead of where it is today? Customer loyalty. There are all of these things that if you focus on them and make it into a system or a process and work at it over time, you can actually increase your exit amount significantly more than if you're just grinding away at increasing the revenue, but it's bad revenue in a way, because all it's doing is making the organization more dependent on you or more dependent on key staff or key suppliers. So, you know, stop digging the holes and, you know, patch all that over and then with a solid foundation, you grow revenue, it's going to be a lot better.
0: Yeah. And and so so if I understand what you're saying, and this is what we learned when we sold our businesses, that, you know, you can work as hard and have the good strategy for the EBITDA. I get that. But the mm-hmm. multiple can differ based on, you know, strategic purchase or based on the, the quality of the business, you know, these other yeah. factors that you mentioned. So it, if I got that right, that the, yeah. You that's basically exactly, what you want that's exactly to use right. a higher model, right?
1: Based yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Finishes. So, so, so the more that your business runs without you and is predictable, yes. the higher the multiple will be. So, you don't get predictability by you being in the middle of everything, which is usually the problem with most businesses under three million dollars. The owner is in the middle of everything, yes. uh, and that's very often can be not just a low multiple, that can be an unsellable business. Yes. Yes. So. And- and
0: and sorry, just quickly on that, because I know that you said you had to do that. And I love the analogy that, you know, there's two things you had to do. And one was basically, you know, fire yourself, get yourself out of a lot of it. Yeah. How, you know, you've done it. You've seen a lot of other people do it. So some tips on that. So, for example, I've got a client at the moment that, you know, he is, you know, he's a Salesforce partner. He still yeah. does some of the architecture, right? And he's trying to get his way out of it, but he hasn't got the income to get the quality of the person in, et cetera. So he feels like he's in a catch- catch 22. And that's why I'm here to help him, you know, drive his top line of the sales to, mm-hmm. to be able to afford someone like you said, right. But tips, like what, what, you know, how did you go about it? How do you say other people go about it? If you're here listening to Raj at the moment thinking, God, I, you know, I just mm-hmm. don't know how to get out of delivery.
1: Well, there's an exercise that I do uh, with some companies, which I'll just share with you um, today. I call it management by vacation. So it's, it's super simple. All you have to do is say, I'm going on vacation for two weeks. What's going to break first? Make all the list of the stuff that's going to break. Now you're going to fix all those things so you're not necessary for that. Then the next time around, I'm going to go on vacation for one month. Now you list all the things. Now you say one quarter. Now you say one year. Once you have fixed all of the things that would break because you are not accessible, that is a, the hack to knowing that you are not actually necessary. Yeah. That's revenues coming in. Things are operating. Every you know, cash is being produced. Reports are. Then you have a, a company that does its own thing. So, my framework is management by vacation, and that's what I ask ask myself. It's like, well, if I'm not available and I actually wanted to take a vacation, or uh, you know, if a family member is ill and I have to go and you know, uh, uh, take care of them, is my business going to be able to do this without me? And if you can assure a buyer that you are wholly unnecessary. There's two great things. Number one, you'll get a better multiple. Yes. And number two, you're not going to have an earnout where you have to continue working in the yes. business. And that's another thing that like service businesses people don't always appreciate that in a services business, if you are so connected to the to the actual operation of the business, you're going to sell it and you're going to become an employee. And those are going to be the least happy two years of your life.
0: It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think that's so true. And look for us when we sold to a to a Google partner, the other thing around that multiple was um, yes, we had a great predictable sales process, which we mm-hmm. built. Uh, and that's because our vendor or our partner used to give us 80 leads a month, and then it went to zero, right? So we were forced yeah. to do it. It didn't help that I was on a dialysis machine at the time. So uh, that made right. it a little bit tougher. But anyway, uh, you know, you, you got to do what you got to do. But Right. But it was big. Be- you know. What we did was did a case study on well, what's the buyer really want to buy us for, right? Because I think Mm -hmm. so many people think about how am I going to spend the money rather than the strategy of, well, put myself in the buyer's shoes, right? And for us, the multiple advantage was that, you know, they were a Google partner that had lots of clients with very low margins. We had Mm -hmm. a robust sales and marketing system for a higher margin product that they could run Mm -hmm. across their business. So all of a sudden the eBIT wasn't as important, it was more around the strategic. What was the upside that they could get out of the multiple, right? Yeah. So, so I know that you're on the buyer side of, you know, of the fence. But what should you know? Have you got some examples where there was more value um, extracted from the multiple based on really understanding the buyer's position?
1: Um, Yeah, well, you know, my own agency actually is is the one that comes to mind right off the bat. In addition to to folks that I've I've helped with this, um, it was very similar to yours. It uh, it, was acquired by a much larger organization that was running fifteen percent margins. I was running forty percent margins, so you know, immediately that's interesting. Now they say, oh, well, this is an inroad with a brand into an entire market segment where if we can get those kinds of margins and understand how how those margins are created, right? Uh, And what kinds of engagements get those margins and we can clone it to other specific niche marketplaces. That was the whole basis for, for the acquisition. So I, you definitely have to do that. Like you said, you were looking of your, who's your ideal buyer, right? So I always think about it as, are you thinking about that? Are you nurturing those buyers, one to two years before this ever needs to happen, if not more, are you always nurturing the buyers and thinking about what is my strategic acquisition plan? Even if I never sell to these people, shouldn't you know anyone who's that influential in a adjacent space? Uh, and if not, perhaps you end up acquiring them because that's something that sometimes I, I work with uh, folks on as well. It's like, okay, well, you're doing really great in this niche, whether that niche be like email marketing. Let's say that they're just one kind of uh, agency uh, or in a vertical like accountancy. So accountants could go into legal adjacent, right? Or the email could go into, uh, let's say, Facebook advertising or something that is adjacent. And sometimes you can acquire another agency combine, and just the sheer mass of it makes it worth more. So by doing this kind of market analysis and understanding who who could acquire you, you're going to find all kinds of opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise.
0: Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And look, for us, we did the same thing. It took us two years, and believe me, that yeah. our buyer didn't even see the opportunity when we first started engaging. Right? right by the end, obviously they did. But yeah, I think that's really important. We were very strategic as to who we we're after. We sort of qualified. It was like you know the reverse auction. We were looking at multiple people, Google, Google partners and who's going to be this best fit, et cetera. So I think, yeah, that's, that's great advice. And you talk about this business model, right? Because it is hard. Let's face it. We've, you know, you run a service business. I run a service business. They're hard, right? You might be running one of really the and thinking, you know, they're hard. It's a really hard gig, right? And you talk about this recurring revenue and and how you could, you know, ha- well, what I'm basically asking is how can you optimize your business model if you're running a service business at the moment?
1: Uh So I think there are two things that come to mind right off the bat. Uh, Number one is recurring revenue. So if you're running a services business, the first question is, how do you make it not just project-based? Because uh, you don't want to be spending so much time hunting every single time. It is much easier to keep a client than to get a new client. So look for the kinds of engagements that have recurring elements. So I would only take recurring business. So I would never take one-offs. So someone's like, oh, could you build a website? And you know, we normally think internally, okay, it's going to cost us five, $7,000 to build a website. Uh, and they said, we'll write you a check for 15000 I said, no, it doesn't matter. Because what you're then doing is you're rigging your business for feast or famine. Yes. And it's hard to staff. It is hard to make the staff successful. It is hard to get consistency. And you're always pulling people off of one engagement to staff another. That's That's a Really tough business model. So, number one is recurring revenue. And number two is how much is it a package, right? So, how much can you make things into defined product or service lines so that you know when you start an engagement, what's it going to cost you in terms of resourcing and what do you need to bill out at? Um, So, I was talking with a friend of mine who runs an agency just last week, and his issue is that he's doing recurring billing. So he's got a monthly retainers, but every scope is slightly different because they need slightly different things. And he's saying, well, you know, I just wanted to keep it easy and have one price. I said, well, aren't your margins different per client? He said, yes. Well, then how can you plan, right? How can you plan if the margins are always different and then you're going to get another client and is that going to be a high or low margin client? And you don't know. So, that's going to, be, it's going to impact him if he sells because the buyer is going to assume every client from now on is low margin because he can't tell me why one is and one isn't. Yes. So, the more you can get discipline around that and be able to plan and say, okay, uh, here's the uh, 12-week onboarding of a client and here are all the resources week by week that need to be staffed here's the margin I'm going to get on that. And maybe I'll kind of take it on the chin for the margin for the first 60 days just to get them involved, engaged uh, properly. But then I should be expecting this kind of thing and always checking on the variance of that. So what is my effective billable rate per employee? What is my effective margin per employee, per service line? Per... So you really got to get kind of neurotic about the numbers um, in order to do that well. And for a lot of agencies, at least in the marketing agency world, they hate that stuff. Right. They did it. They want to do the creative. They want to the client relationships. They really hate that number stuff. But that's going to be the difference between you have being able to show up with financials or someone's like, ooh, I want that. And it's like, no, I'm hiring you and you'll work for us. It's yeah. it's a very starkly different thing.
0: Yeah. And if you don't have that skill, right? So let's say you're listening to Raj and you're thinking, I just don't have that skill. Numbers isn't my thing. It's never been my thing. I'm not going to change that, right? You know, what what are some options? You know, do you get a virtual CFO? Do you, you know, do you put Mm-hmm. you know, more, more investment in your account? Like, what are some ways that you could overcome that if numbers just aren't yeah. your thing?
1: Well, I, I had that issue in that numbers are my thing, but I didn't have any time. As I mentioned earlier, I was really focused on uh, generating as much business for the business as possible and then getting myself out of things. So I, I hired a fractional COO. And one of her first tasks was to understand, first tasks were to make sure that all the team members were on board and they had someone to talk to because I was running around doing my own thing. Uh, and then this, the, it really bonded with the team. And the second was to really get discipline around what are all the things we're doing for clients? Are we charging appropriately for them? Um, you know, What should we be charging? Do we need to change how we position and sell in order to make this consistent for the long-term? So I hired a fractional COO uh, and it worked out extremely well.
0: Yeah, and how did you find them? Like, you know, where do people go to find a a good fractional CFO?
1: Uh, That's a good question. I happen to find it by networking. Um, I I put out the feelers and someone who came recommended by, uh, who was it? I believe my bookkeeper was in a networking group with her, with uh, my fractional COO. And she's since become uh, a friend and, uh, you know, really, really helped the business. So, uh, but it, it is networking for that.
0: Yeah. And look, you know, that's one of the reasons why I've created a, a community for cloud consultants because it is that network. It's the, you know, who right. knows who, et cetera. And that's my job is to really sit there and be the conductor, of the orchestra, and, and provide, oh, okay, you need this. Okay. Well, bang. I know this person right. connected. Uh, so that's uh, spot on. And um, yeah, look, I think, uh, and if you look at the moment, I did uh, that, you know, the top valued companies in the world at the moment. And majority of them have got a recurring revenue model, right? You look Mm -hmm. at your Amazon, your apples, you know, there's, yes, a lot of them are in tech, but they're also, their core fundamentals is a a recurring revenue business. And to be honest, that's what, you know, also helped us is that we had a contract for recurring revenue, right? So we had a, you know, I pushed really hard to get a contract for our region with the vendor Mm -hmm. So that then I had a piece of paper to sell. And I think, you know, some of the things you talked about before was, you know, what are the, you know, you went through, you know, you, you, uh, how you get your cash cycle, your, um, you know, your market, you go into your customer loyalty, et cetera. You know, mm-hmm. for me, I think it's like, you know, how robust is your relationship with your vendor and, and what contracts you can get? Because as you said, mm-hmm. you think revenue selling the business i got to get to this revenue but believe me all the due diligence and you know it day to day, all the due diligence due, due diligence that goes around actually selling a business all of a sudden yeah. you start to think oh well wow. and i know you've got some brilliant resources on exit scout.com to, to find yep. those so instead of going through them all now raj will uh share those with you and look we could talk for a lot longer there's just one more thing i want to get to before we get to the quick questions at the end and And that is around um, an event strategy. You spoke about Mm -hmm. a way that you can leverage events to get more clients. So if you can just take, you know, you who's listening uh, through that, that'd be fantastic.
1: Yeah. So there's there's a few ways to do that. Um, And one of the ways is to do joint events. So if you have a uh, colleague who is in an adjacent uh, business, in other words, they have a similar client from you, but they do not offer the same thing as you. It can often be a very powerful thing to create a joint event in which all of you invite your clients and your uh, prospects. And so get together at a bunch of, let's say, four different vendors, all of which have the same client, but none of which are competitive. And you put on a, uh, you know, it can be whatever format you like these days, it'll probably be Zoom, but you can put on uh, something with roundtables. Uh, you can interview luminaries that these this particular audience would be interested in. And each one of the participants has an opportunity to show their expertise in front of a much larger pool. So it's a way to cross-pollinate your lead pools, and because it's non-competitive, uh, it's kind of everybody wins uh, as long as you just have a common understanding of is hard pitching allowed or is this really a, a soft pitch kind of situation? And that's very situation dependent based on the kinds of businesses, um, but that can work very well. And then one cousin of that is the thought leadership roundtable. Yeah, uh, and that is where um, we would have other folks who are just we want in our network, and we get together our twelve people roundtable lunch. Uh, and each goes around the table and discusses uh, what they're seeing on a certain topic. So all the MC has to do is come up with who's being invited and then what is the topic of discussion? So it could be, well, what's inflation doing uh, to our uh, businesses now and our supply chains? Or it might be uh, you know, uh, hiring in this time or managing staff, or even it could be uh, preparing for exit, right? What we've talked about today something that is universal and all those people will be interested in. So uh, when I was running the agency for law firms, we tell them to do this. And they said that the amount of business that they got out of this just by increasing their network was huge. Uh, it's it's highly manual. But on the other hand, it's it's kind of exponential because every time you do it, you're introduced to a whole nother group of people you wouldn't have known. And as you repeat it, it, it snowballs upon itself.
0: Yeah, yeah. And look, and at the moment, we're... We're finding it very successful to do that virtually, which is i.e. LinkedIn, right? So if you look at all your current Mm -hmm. client base, you go and look at their connections, their mutual connections, people that they're following, and all of a sudden you'll see patterns of people that are Mm -hmm. your ideal client in there, right? So, yes, I think the event space is great, but don't forget right in front of you at the moment with LinkedIn, there's an opportunity to leverage mm-hmm. your network a lot better and uh, instead of sending you know spammy messages out to people. So uh, look, uh, Raj, it, it's been brilliant. Um, you know What what you've explained is fantastic. And like I said, all the resources are at exitscout.com. I know you've got some brilliant videos. You've got over 100 videos there and you've got some uh, some downloads. But let's go into the quick rapid fire. So uh, I'm going to ask you some questions and get some rapid responses. Are you ready for that? Well, I'm ready. All right. Go ahead let's rock and roll. So uh, the first was, what are some daily sales habits that you do today to accelerate your sales?
1: This is going to sound remarkably uh, mundane, uh, but it's about calendaring things that need to be done. So I'm kind of neurotic about planning. And every Monday, I've got a plan for the week, and I will actually calendar time in which things get done. And it sounds really silly, but as especially as a business owner, It gets really hard, and there's always the crisis de jour. And you come in, and the first thing you do in the day is you check your email. You're screwed. So it is really about having a time, ideally first thing in the day, before you uh, enter into anything to finish your marketing and your sales tasks. So I would say that's that's the. I mean, it's basic, but that's kind of what works for me.
0: Yeah, time blocking is brilliant. Uh, The next one is for you. Where do you find information to improve your your sales skills, your your sales knowledge
1: um i have a, a business partner uh who's well he's a colleague he, he's a, he's actually the fellow who acquired my business and has since become a, a business partner on a number of other deals he runs an outsource sales and marketing organization and because they have over a hundred clients uh i if i ever have any question or wanted to know what's the you know the best and the latest and the greatest i can call him he's got the finger on the pulse of it so just knowing a person like that Uh, really just keeps me updated on what's working and any strategies and tactics.
0: Yeah, great. So at the moment, if I could grant you one wish in your business uh, to accelerate sales, what would that be?
1: Um, Really, it is being introduced to people who uh, are great founders of companies who want to partner to grow. It's really about meeting more people with a mindset of yes, I I want to grow something to exit because where I come in is I'm helping them get from point A to point B. And now whether that is with just kind of working with them on a mentorship basis or whether that's investing in the company, uh, it's all about, you know, if I could have a line of people who are really excited for a bigger future with their company, uh, that to me would be a dream scenario.
0: Yeah, great. And, you know, looking at what you know now, right, through all of this brilliant experience that you had, what's something you wish you had have started sooner?
1: building my personal brand I think and which is an interesting thing because it's changed right because when I had the agency I was the uh, I did do a lot of personal branding and uh, but that's the first time I had and that was all around being a uh the guy who helps lawyers market um but if I had once I sold it I had kind of re-engaged and kind of rebranded myself to being something else uh then I think that would have been beneficial so I think even before that and then after that period of my life where I did a bunch of personal branding, really never letting off the gas on that probably would have been a better move.
0: Yeah, Brian. And we just actually did an episode on that. So if you go to 414, there's an episode on personal uh, branding by Bob uh, Gentle. So uh, perfect perfect timing. So uh, as I said, you can get all the resources at exitscout.com. And Raj, it's been uh, brilliant having you on the show. Thanks for sharing all your experience. And I'm sure that you'll have uh, some members of, or people that are listening to this podcast reach out to you because what you do is really valuable to To i think to have a, a major lifestyle improvement right so um, absolutely yeah thanks for being on oh, great thanks very much paul so that was a great interview with uh raj absolutely loved it i love these uh little uh system of management by vacation so go and uh re you know re-listen to that uh, and take it down. I think that's a brilliant way. I used to do that in my corporate life. I don't do it enough in my own, so I need to do that. Uh, the second is the recurring revenue model, which I'm sure you've heard before. But you know, some of the ways that he said to approach it is fantastic. And that fractional COO, if you're doing everything and you're getting pulled from pillar to post and not spending enough time on the front end of your business, I think that's a great opportunity. And if you need someone, reach out to me because we do, or I am creating a list of uh uh, COOs, our uh, virtual fractional COOs. so i've got that for you and uh, whatever you liked please share it on your linkedin uh, with an image from raj of the podcast and uh, he would love that it's a nice way of thanking him. and also you can find out more at exitscout.com. uh the links the, are all in in the uh our website paul higgins mentoring.com that he did and uh you know if you know 110 or you know how many agency owners, uh, why don't you share this great episode with them? Uh, They'll love you for it. They'll think you're a rock star. And check out some of the solo shows that I do that are specific just to cloud consultants. And uh, don't forget about that free Slack community. If you're not in it already, uh, you can go and join it at cloudconsultantscollective.com. Our next week's guest is Andrew Mowat, And he's got a brilliant way of getting those impossible meetings in your calendar, right? He's got a fantastic platform and you're going to love that. Uh, The last thing that I always say is please take action to accelerate your sales. I'm fired up after today's episode. What about you? But hey, before you go, learning is just one piece of the puzzle. Now it's time to put today's strategy into action. Head over now to today's show page at paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash podcast and share how you'll put it into action. Be sure to head over to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review the show. Tell me what your favorite episode is and don't wait one minute more to gain access to your pulse check at paulhigginsmentoring.com. This could be the difference between struggling to get more leads and making
1: this next quarter your best one yet.